It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. Oh, I'm not telling you a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. I'm talking about the U.S. of A. The time? You guessed it. We're going back to 2016. Introducing Allison Carlos. In the spring of 2016, I noticed an elevated social rancor over the upcoming United States presidential election, and with that dynamic, there was a notable rise in anger and anxiety by some within my faith community as they responded. To the political, cultural, and social views that were different than their own. It was the worst of times because people in our country, the church, families, turned against each other because of everybody's strong conviction that the other side is wrong. We have all witnessed one of the ugliest moments in American history, but it was also the best of times. Then was a rare moment since a long time ago when so many of us began a journey of soul searching of what truly makes us, what we represent, what we believe, especially for those of us who are Christ followers. Some started this journey earlier than others, like my friend Allison Carlos. I was an elder in the church at the time. And I found myself in various settings with congregants. I witnessed an unexpected harshness among some people as they talked about religious and cultural divides of American society. Critiques and complaints frequently included intentional or unintentional denigration of people groups that mimicked the rhetoric fueled by the media, namely social media. Conversations and online posts often contained angry, solution-oriented statements without room for inquiry, listening, pondering. Political polarization between members of the church community were oozing from hidden places, and there was rising intolerance to hear or engage with people that they had known. For years, it was disheartening to watch what was going on. In some settings, there was little differentiation between communication of people claiming to be followers of Christ and the general public square. In response to what she had witnessed within our church, Allison invited a bunch of us to participate in a ministry, which she called the Cultural Learning Group. CLG. Initially, I thought she wanted my participation because I'm Asian. Well, turns out it's much more than that. Development of the CLG was a direct attempt to disrupt a pattern of people talking past and over each other because of their passionate ideological issues. 
The hope was for people in the ecclesial community to consider how to engage with authenticity beyond and through their own pain and fear. For them to consider what it means to really listen to another with generosity, humility, and love. The primary vision was to create a trustworthy space where a diverse group of influencers in the church would learn and experience understanding about how different kinds of people go through their everyday life, how they experience life, and to learn that through listening practices. To practice and listen without judgment and then to consider how our thoughts about that would apply to our individual lives as followers of Jesus. And there was also the interest to increase personal understanding of what we thought we believed in and what our biases were about people and hopefully to uncover blindnesses we had. And also one of the Visions was to discover what is common and also unique about us as human beings. I realized I would be asking people to be very vulnerable with others that they may or may not have known well. I was worried. I was worried primarily that people would be unintentionally hurt in their vulnerability and sharing. I was asking 33 people of varying theological perspectives and that live within a broad spectrum with cultural differences, ethnicity differences, age differences, gender differences, and socioeconomic status differences. I was asking them to lean deeply into their courage and faith and to trust in virtuous commitments to others. For it was that virtue and goodness that all of these people claimed as part of their Christian faith. I could speak words to them that everything was safe and confidential, yet the fact would be depend that fact would be dependent upon thirty three people sitting in the room. My deepest emotions were for protection and dignity of all who would participate. I prayed at every step for God to help me craft the program with great intention and mindfulness. And the result was 33 people looking in the eyes of the others, practicing being vulnerable and authentic. We told our stories of how we come to where we are, our joy, our sadness, our struggle, our victory and defeat. The stories went all over the place. The biggest part is actually on listening without judgment. That's the whole point. At the same time, some of these stories are truly inspiring. I reached out to some who don't mind retelling them publicly, and I put them together and make this episode on random thoughts. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Introducing Dick Lane it was during the summer of 64. 
Mississippi was flooded with college students from all over the country who had been trained as civil rights workers in Oxford, Ohio. Then came the disappearance of three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Neshoba County, Mississippi. Dick Lane's voice was becoming dreamy as he trailed on the memory lane, recalling the summer when he went down to Mississippi to join the investigation of the disappearance, later found out to be the murder of three civil rights workers. Their disappearance instituted a special investigation by the FBI. Now, this was quickly followed by a mass influx into Neshoba County of not only FBI agents, but military and newsmen as the search for the three civil rights workers began. On August 4, 1964, their bodies were found in an earthen dam on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And thus began a long and intensive investigation to find their murderers, an investigation which became one of the biggest news items of 1964. Mississippi was not in the best light in America. The words of the news report were not kind. And during the months that followed, Mississippi was described as, I quote, a land where the Constitution is interpreted by the sheriff and the Bill of Rights amendable at will, a state with a despicable record of indifference to crime and humiliation, whose supreme law is what local cops and local vigilantes ordain, a land of gang law the law of fear, the fear of shots in the dark, of arrest on some unpredictable charge, or a job lost, or a mortgage foreclosed. One newspaper article described the white residents of Philadelphia as a modern-day Sodom or Gomorrah, and spoke of it in the same light as the Germans' Dachau. That's what it was like then. The story of the investigation was made into a full-length motion picture, Mississippi Burning, released in the 1980s, starring Gene Hackman as the lead investigator, and Dick Lane was one of the FBI agents in the investigation team in real life. Here I was, a northern FBI agent who had never been in the South heading for Philadelphia, Mississippi, where I would work and live for the next few months. When I first went down, I wasn't sure how long they would need me. Well, if I knew nothing else for certain about Philadelphia, I knew one thing, and that was that God is as real and close to those who sincerely seek Him in Philadelphia as those who seek him in other cities in the world. What makes a man? I would sometimes wonder. Dick and I go to the same church, yet watching him in the pew from across the sanctuary, I can't really imagine all the substance that make up this older gentleman from my previous generation, who always holds himself so properly and gently. The white FBI agent from the North, 
delved deeply into the South to investigate the murder of two Jews and a black by the KKK can be described as someone who has seen the worst of man. So, what prompted him to do this next thing? I think this episode in my life would fall under the heading of a remarkable friendship. In December of 1981, a Christian organization spoke at our church. Their ministry was with prison inmates who had no family or visitors. They were looking for people who would pay for a Christmas package for these inmates so that they would know that someone on the outside cared about them. The organization would put the package together with our names and address, so my wife and I sent a Christmas package to an unknown prisoner at San Quentin. A few weeks later, we received a thank you letter from the prisoner who began by saying, several of his fellow inmates told him, you, you don't have to thank the person for sending you the package, and that most prisoners don't afraid of a follow-up visit by someone with a Christian organization. But he wanted to send us a thank you letter. He gave us his name and address, saying that if I wanted to write him, he would enjoy that. I wrote him a letter that began an ongoing correspondence. After a couple of months or so, he wrote me saying, if I wanted to visit him, that would be great. So I visited prison inmate Markham Anderson, C29770 at San Quentin Prison. I would visit Markham almost every week, but at least once a month. I purposely did not ask him what he was arrested for. Eventually he brought up the fact that he was arrested for kidnapping a wealthy man from his home. No one was hurt, but Markham's partner in crime panicked and drove off with the car, leaving Markham behind. Markham was arrested the next day. At his trial, the judge threw the book at Markham, sentencing him to life with possibility of parole. After a few months, Markham asked me, How long are you going to visit me? I replied, I don't know. How long are you going to live? I knew that Markham was testing me. Was he a Christian project that someday would come to an end? He was aware that several different Christian ministries began visiting prisoners, but after a period of time, they stopped coming. Because California Corrections transfers inmates to different prisons, over the years I have visited Markham at San Quentin, Folsom, Mule Creek, and Soledad. His last transfer was to the California Institute for Men at Chino, but that was 400 miles away, too far for me to visit him. But we continued our letters and phone conversations. 
After several years of visiting Markham, he began saying to his inmate friends during my visit, Hey, I want you to meet my dad. It was interesting because Markham is black and I am white. On occasion, I would say, yeah, I adopted him. I am a serious follower of Jesus Christ. Markham was not. Over the years, we had many conversations about the Christian faith, but not every visit, because I didn't want Markham to think that he was a Christian project of mine. So our conversations touched on a wide range of subjects. It was very clear to Markham that my relationship with Jesus Christ was the top priority in my life. He also knew how much I wanted him to accept Christ as his Savior and Lord. He always said, I don't want to become one of those parole Christians, knowing that many inmates, when they have a parole hearing, say that they're a Christian only because it will look good before the parole board. At one point, I told him that you coming to know Jesus is so important that if I had to choose for you to be paroled not knowing Jesus Christ, or have you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord and never be paroled, my choice would be for you to have become a serious follower of Jesus Christ and never be paroled. He was shocked. However, the good news is that about 10 years ago, Markham made a decision to become a serious follower of Jesus Christ. He went to chapel regularly and attended visits from Christian groups. He was also an active participant in a Bible study with a group of Christian inmates. Over a period of time, Markham's anger and his write-ups by correction officers significantly diminished. A couple of months ago, Markham was paroled to a halfway house in the Los Angeles area. He said that sometime in the future he'd like to take the bus to my area to visit as a free man. Forty years ago, he asked me, how long are you going to visit me? I want to ask him the same question when he comes to visit. Introducing Michael Zachariah. Thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. I still remember the time you told us in a small group that you're the son of a Jewish mother and a Palestinian father. I was screaming in my mind saying, did he just say that? How does that work? What does that look like? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, my dad was a Palestinian Arab, uh, born in Jerusalem, raised in Jerusalem for generations and generations beforehand. And my mom got to Jerusalem via a very uh, novel-esque route. She was born in Kiev, in the Ukraine, uh, Jewish, 
uh, fled at the time of the Russian Revolution to Berlin, uh, where she grew up until she was 17 in 1933 when Hitler came to power. And they had to escape, to escape the Holocaust. And she had an arranged marriage to a Jewish man who had a rite of passage to Jerusalem, uh, then Palestine. So she was married at 17, moved to Jerusalem. They needed a car. They went to British Motors because British Motors was the car dealership and the British mandated Palestine. And my dad was the sales manager at the British Motors dealer in Jerusalem, sold her a Morris. She didn't know how to drive. Uh, he offered to teach her how to drive and they began a 15-year affair. Um, and in 1948, uh, he left on a business trip to the U.S. and the war broke out between what became Israel and the Palestinians. And he wasn't allowed to go back. He lost all of his property and was granted refugee and asylum status in the U.S. He sent for my mom. She divorced her husband, left her two teenage daughters, 12 and 14 at the time, with whom I am still very, very close. My, the younger of those two older sisters, who is now 84, was uh, here last week for a two-week visit, and I talked to her virtually every week. Uh, uh, and so she came to the U.S., started a whole new life, and that's where I was born. And that heritage of being raised with a Palestinian father and an Israeli Jewish mother has totally shaped me, shaped how I view life and conflict, and what my passion in life is. News 32-year-old Sumaya Santosh from Iduki District in Kerala had been working in Israel for the last seven years. On May 10, 2021, tragedy struck when a Hamas rocket hit the house she had been working in as a caregiver in the southern Israeli coastal city of Ashkelon. She was on a video call with her husband in India when the initial Hamas rocket barrage began on the city. She was killed immediately. News. Israeli forces killed a teenage Palestinian boy in the occupied West Bank on Tuesday. Mohammed Shahadeh, 14, was killed by Israeli forces gunfire in El Qadir. The Palestinian Wafer News Agency quoted local activist Ahmad Salah as saying that Israeli soldiers opened live fire injuring Shahadeh before detaining him and that soldiers prevented ambulances from reaching him. Israel's army confirmed in a statement the death of a Palestinian, whom it said was among three suspects who hurled Molotov cocktails at passing drivers, endangering their lives. When two nations have been so hostile with each other for over half a century, does it really matter who threw the first punch?
That is an amazing story. Now, when I think about the time period when your parents were together, they actually went through some very turmoil events in history, especially in the Middle East. There was the Nazis, and we have the Six-Day War, and then we have the never-ending conflict between Israel and Palestine. How did they weather all the politics that have to do with their countries of origin and reconciling to building a family together as a couple? It's a good question, Paul. The 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 most inter uh, an interesting part of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians is not very much at all a religious conflict, uh, even though their religions are similar in certain respects and very different in other respects. And Palestinians are both Christians and Muslims, so there's significant differences among the Palestinians in terms of, of religion. Uh, but the, the primary issue is one over land. Uh, yes. And so my parents, as they grew older, I mean, my dad initially had a lot of resentment towards Israel because he lost everything that he owned and wasn't allowed to go back to his home. Um, but as the years went by, uh, my parents did not argue that much about Israel-Palestine issues. They really saw the common ground of the fact that before the, the war happened, before Israel was created as a state, Jews and, and Arabs in Palestine got along very, very well. Uh, it really boils down to a battle over a singular piece of land and who's going to own it and who's going to have it. And so Israelis and Palestinians have a lot of commonality. The differences all revolve around land. Um, but the fight over the land led to great resentment by Israelis of the Palestinians who engaged in a lot of terrorist acts and uh, by the Palestinians toward the Israelis who occupied their territory and took their homes. And I grew up facing two completely different narratives from my dad's relatives. My dad spent a lot of time and energy and resources sponsoring and bringing over his relatives, my cousins and uncles and and extended family members to the U.S. Uh, to give them a new start. And my mom had relatives, her sis my sisters, her daughters, and other Jewish friends and relatives who had a very different perspective on uh, the issue. And I grew up listening to very different narratives, loving both sides and seeing that these two completely conflicting narratives are so sincerely held uh, and yet are so completely different. With your being a half-Jew and half-Palestinian, did you feel any internal or external conflict with that identity? The conflict for me came when I started 
I spent a four-year period as a co-director of a faith-based uh, reconciliation peacemaking project in the Middle East. And that's where I felt the conflict because when I was dealing with the Palestinians and listening to them and on the West Bank and listening to the the, the stories they had to tell and the pain they were experiencing, um, that's where I felt the conflict uh, deeply. And when I talked with the Israelis on the Israeli side, because we were doing this faith-based peacemaking effort between Israelis, Jews, and Palestinian Arabs, and then we were doing it between Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims. and you just, I, I would feel, when I was talking with the Israelis, I would feel the pain that they were expressing caused by, in the, in the case of one of the reconciliation efforts we did, of these Israeli parents whose kids had been killed by Palestinian stones or guns. Uh, they had kids that had been killed that way. And on the Palestinian side, they had had Palestinian parents whose kids had been killed by the Israeli soldiers for whatever reason. And to, to face that, that depth of pain that they were feeling, and then to be, in my own mind, associated with the other side that had caused this pain, that was really tough sledding. News. A rabbi in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, was more than 6,000 miles from Jerusalem when he heard the Israeli government decided to bar two Muslim members of Congress from making an official visit to the Jewish state. But within minutes, his phone was flooded with calls from congregants, local Jewish agencies, and lay leaders who plunged into what had become a familial routine, figuring out how to respond to yet another political battle over their congresswoman, Representative Ilan Omar, and Israel. There was very much an attitude of, oh, here we go again, said Rabbi Avi Olitsky. The pendulum keeps swinging left and right, left and right. It's dizzying and exhausting and distracting. Emotions are raw. A 2019 article in Christianity Today says, Among Christians in America, Israel can be viewed as a fulfillment of prophecy, a democratic ally in the region of chaos, or an occupier oppressing stateless Palestinians. How to choose? Do you find your unique identity an advantage when you tried to reconcile the Israelis and the Palestinians? It was an advantage and it was a disadvantage. Um, I wish I spoke Arabic and I wish I spoke Hebrew. I speak neither. Mm. So that's a big disadvantage. Um, and yet the Israelis could feel like they were fairly safe with me because my mom was an Israeli Jew. The Palestinians could feel like, okay, this guy is sort of one of us because his dad is a Palestinian. Not totally safe, but pretty darn safe. 
and certainly he understands us. Uh, when I went to Syria and was working on things in Syria, it was a big disadvantage because any connection to Israel at that time by was viewed by Syria as almost a kiss of death for being allowed into discussions like this. So it really depended on the audience and and the timing uh, for that point of view. Uh, but how it affected me is I'm passionate about healthy conflict resolution and the importance of embracing conflict and the advantages and the growth that you derive from healthy resolution of conflict, particularly as a follower of Jesus and how Christ calls us, you know, he says, blessed are the peacemakers and throughout the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, Jesus talks about the criticality of the importance of reconciling or trying to reconcile with your brother. In Matthew, it talks about the, the person who is uh, on the altar making his sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And the Lord says, if you have something that your brother has against you, leave the sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother and then come back to me. So reconciliation in the Jesus's eyes is more important in terms of being a follower and a disciple of his than to make a sacrifice to him. And that is so true throughout Jesus's teaching and the teachings uh, throughout the New Testament. And it's critically important to be able to do that, that you are able to view the other person, the other, who may look different than you, believe totally differently than you, to view them as a beloved child of God and to listen to them and show them respect even when you totally disagree with them. And you don't have to agree, but going into discussions with a mindset and a heart set of curiosity is at curiosity and respect is critically important. And that is what is so sorely lacking right now in American society and throughout world society right now, is that if there is the other who thinks differently and has a different political perspective or religious perspective or racial perspective, that person is demonized and put in a box and he's not he or she is not listened to and it's just they are bad and I am right. And that is what is causing this major rift in the U.S. And for a democracy to operate, there has to be civil discourse among people that strongly disagree about politics, about religion, about race, about whatever topic there is for democracy to, to continue and to thrive there has to be civil discourse on issues on which people do not agree. And that's the key problem that the country's facing right now. I think it makes it really interesting for you and me without specific ethnic background to witness the polarized racial conflict in America today. And you already actually uh, took us in that a little bit. I want to come back to that. 
But taking what you just said about um, how Christianity, how Jesus himself uh, instructed us to put down the offering and go make up with our brothers, <clears throat> I want to take that to the field and uh, imagine that some of the situation that you mentioned when you were in the Middle East, when you work with uh, the Israeli whose uh, children could be injured or even killed by Palestinians and vice versa. I don't suppose your goal would to go in there and make them hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Uh, but when you go into a situation like that, when you work with people who experience such deep sufferings and pain, what was your goal? Uh, the goal was to move them at the end, have them move themselves, because I can't move people, have them set, set the stage, set the agenda, set the topics, uh, so that they move closer together, so that they listen to each other, so that they understand much more clearly, and in many cases for the first time, the narrative of the other and to view the other as a human being like themselves. And that moves people dramatically closer to one another. It doesn't mean that it resolves the issue. It doesn't mean that this house that the Israeli is living in that used to be my house, it's not that they're going to give it back to me and say, welcome to our home and we're moving out. That's not going to happen. At the same time, people with great differences have got to be able to live together. And they have to live together without trying to kill each other. And so an objective of having them view each other as humans, to understand the other's perspective, even if they don't agree with it, and then to sort through how are we going to live together in peace given our differences, not running away from our differences, not covering up our differences, at the same time recognizing our differences, recognizing our commonalities, and then problem solving together as to how are we going to make this work. I asked Mike to share some thoughts on the polarized situation in the States, on how people are dehumanizing each other. Here's what he said. And it reflects uh, an inability of people to truly believe this person sitting in front of me is a beloved child of God, just like I'm a beloved child of God. And I need to view them through that lens and then listen with curiosity as to what they think, why they think it, hopefully set the stage for them to be able to listen to me with that same point of view and walk away from the discussion, maybe not agreeing, but walk away from it saying, I am going to deal with this person as a beloved child of God, even though I don't agree with them, even though I may fiercely disagree with them, I am not going to demonize them or in some way diminish their stature as a child of God. 
It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them. It doesn't mean that I'm going to support what they they think. Uh, I may strongly oppose what they think. And I'm going to do it with an attitude of, this is a beloved child of God. And having that attitude and going into these discussions with hoping for it to be a learning conversation as opposed to purely a message delivery conversation is critically important if we're going to break through this divisive, uh, unhealthy situation that we have in the U.S. right now. You mentioned the word curiosity several times. Is this uh, an important element in conflict resolution? It's a fundamentally important element in conflict resolution. Because if we go into a discussion with, with absolute certainty, we're right, they're wrong. There's no curiosity there. Curiosity is an indicator of humility. Mm. It's an indicator that I, I need to understand where you're coming from. It's an indicator of respect. I need to, and want to understand what is behind you believing what you believe doesn't mean I have to agree with you, but curiosity is an indicator of humility, it's an indicator of respect, and it's absolutely essential in conflict resolution. Do you think we Americans need more curiosity about our neighbors? <laughs> absolutely we do. We need more curiosity and we need, need more courage and understanding of the importance of being in contact with people that are different than we are and believe differently than we do with an attitude of curiosity. Mike Zachariah, great talking to you. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure talking with you as well.